I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. And this evening, I'll be reading from Judges chapter 2, verse 6, through verse 6 of chapter 3. But before we hear God's word to us this evening, let us call upon him once again in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize as we come again to worship you this evening that we still deal with sin. We still deal with consequences for our sin. But I pray this evening as we look to your word that you would give us hope in the fight and that you would help us to see your purpose even in the consequences of our sin. So Lord, help us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening, beginning in Judges chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their, their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have tr transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, 
in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. This is the word of the Lord. The glorious news of the gospel that we hear week in and week out is that in Christ you may become a child of God. As John writes in John chapter 1, everyone who receives Jesus, who believes in his name, is given the right to become a child of God. Such are in this sense reborn, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so for such a one, God is no longer merely your judge, but is your father. All your sins are forgiven and washed away by the blood of Jesus. You have personally entered into the covenant of grace and are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And you no longer bear the curse of sin or are under God's wrath. This is good news. And yet on this side of glory, you will still deal with sin. And your sin will still have consequences that may disrupt your life. And this reality will at times raise certain questions in your mind. Is my current suffering a direct consequence of my sin? Is God angry with me? Is he punishing me? Am I under the curse for covenant unfaithfulness? How do I know when my suffering is a consequence of sin? These are questions that virtually every Christian has asked at one time or another. So these are some of the questions that I'm going to consider tonight as I work through the text and offer you five lessons in light of it. So lesson number one is that there is no covenant without covenant faith. In Judges chapter 1... Through the beginning of chapter 2, we read about Israel's failure after their initial conquest of Canaan to completely destroy and drive out the Canaanites, which God had commanded them to do. In chapter 2, verse 6, through chapter 3, verse 6, that I just read for you, the same period of chapter 1 is now viewed again from God's perspective. In one sense, it's a spiritual survey 
of the military exploits that you read about earlier, and it provides a theological grid for understanding why events unfold the way they do in chapter 1. In addition, it gives you a theological framework for understanding what's going to unfold in the rest of the book, especially in chapters 3 through 16. In other words, this section is designed to help you understand what God is doing during this period of the Judges. For even though the period of the Judges appears to be chaotic, we see that there's a reason things are happening the way that they are happening and that God still has a purpose in all that is taking place. So verse 6 begins again with the death of Joshua and the second generation of Israelites who had come out of Egypt. Remember the first generation of Israelites that comes out of Egypt refuses to go into Canaan as they are commanded to do. And so they're forced to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until they all die except for Joshua and Caleb. The second generation of Israelites then enters into and conquers Canaan. The period of the judges, therefore, essentially begins with the third generation of Israelites and all those who come later. And the key to understanding this next generation and the subsequent generations and the turmoil that they experience is found in verse 10. It says, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So this generation did not have a personal experiential knowledge of God and his saving work. They had not seen the wonders that God did in Egypt and in the wilderness. They did not experience God's power crossing the Jordan and conquering Jericho. So they were suffering from generational amnesia and the result was generational apostasy. As you see in verses 11 through 13, because they did not know God in his saving work in this way, they abandoned God to serve the Baals and Ashtaroth. Now Baal and Ashtoreth were agricultural and fertility gods. Baal was the god of storm and fertility, and Ashtoreth was his female companion. So in Canaanite theology, the fertility of the land and the prosperity of the people depended on this relationship between Baal and Ashtoreth. This is why their worship involved a lot of sexual activity, including sacred prostitution. Now, here it talks about the Baals and Ashtaroth in the plural because each of these Canaanite peoples had their own version of this. Now, in many ways, the, the beginning description here in chapter 2 recalls what you read back in Joshua 24 when Joshua renews the covenant with his people at Shechem. And at that time, Joshua says to the people... Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. 
Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So you hear that word serve over and over again. Now that generation, Joshua's generation, chose to serve the Lord. But we see here in Judges 2 that the next generation serves the Baals. They abandon the Lord. You'll notice in verse 12, God is said to be the God of their fathers. Not their God. That was their parents' God. It's not the one they embrace. Their covenant unfaithfulness, therefore, stemmed from their lack of covenant faith. Yeah, they were legally members of the covenant community, but they did not embrace the God of the covenant by faith. They didn't know the Lord and they did not experience his saving work. The reminder for, the, for us is that it is not enough to know about God. Nor is it enough to have faithful parents or be part of a faithful church. You must personally and experientially know God. You must experience for yourself his saving work and not just rely on his saving work in others. To be a Christian requires a supernatural spiritual conversion. Yes, the children of believers are legally members of the covenant community. But they only become personal members of the covenant when they embrace God by faith. So my exhortation to parents and adults in the church is to heed the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 6 and 7. In which Moses says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So first, you need to embrace the gospel. But that, then Moses goes on to say, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you talk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now I don't know if the... Spiritual amnesia of the third generation was the result of the second generation's failure to do this in some capacity. Maybe it was. I'm not inclined to think so, though, because Joshua's generation is presented in a very positive light in these verses. However, the reminder remains that we must diligently teach our children and labor to pass along the faith. This is why I'm adamant that we must be worshiping with our families in the home. That we should keep our children with us in corporate worship. So that they are hear the, hearing the same gospel we have believed. And they are in the same context that the Holy Spirit is working in which we have seen him work. So we must tell them about our God and about his faithfulness to us. But Judges teaches you. To above all else, pray for God to personally reveal himself to your children and to regenerate them. For as talked about this morning, you cannot convert your children no matter how diligently you teach them. Only God can do that work by his spirit and his word. So as you teach your children diligently, pray for them all the more diligently for your children must know God not just about God 
and children. There are some of you here this evening. My kids are here this evening. You've probably heard them at some point already tonight. My exhortation to you is that you cannot depend on the faith of your parents or your friends or your pastors. Yes, parents and churches have responsibilities with regard to your salvation. But so do you. They must teach you, but you must listen. They must pray for and with you, but you must pray too. And so even the youngest of you here, I ask, are you going after the Lord? Or are you going after other gods? Maybe the gods of popularity, of academic or athletic success, of TV, of relationships, of good looks, of wealth, of entertainment, or any other number of things that are going to vie for your affection and attention. You see, every single generation must face Joshua's challenge. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will God be your God or just the God of your parents? Covenant faithfulness, obedience, it matters. But the first question is, do you have covenant faith? Are you truly a child of God? Do you know him, not just about him? Because the answers to all of the other questions about sin's curse and consequences depend on the answer to that question. Because God deals differently with the children of his love than he does with the children of his wrath. So the first lesson is that covenant faithfulness depends on covenant faith. The second lesson is that sin always comes with curses and consequences. How does God respond to Israel's unfaithfulness? Well, God responds as any loving father or husband would respond to disobedient children or an unfaithful wife. And both images are used to describe God's relationship with Israel. God gets mad. And they provoked the Lord to anger, verse 12. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, it says in verse 14 and again in verse 20. Sin always makes God angry. If it didn't, he would not be a good, just, and loving God. The anger of the Lord, therefore, is one of the natural, direct consequences of sin. He's not pleased when you sin, so you will feel his displeasure. Unbelievers are always under God's wrath, and they are bearing the curse of of sin, which is not just physical death, but it is spiritual and eternal death. Remember, God warned Adam that if he broke the covenant, he would die, and God always does what he says. His anger, therefore, is faithfulness to his word as much as it is the natural response of his goodness and holiness and justice and love in the face of evil. Sin, we know, comes with a curse, and the whole world is under that curse outside of Christ. But does God still get angry with his beloved children when they sin? Yes, he does. Why? Not only because he is good, holy, and just, and must hate sin, it is because he loves his children. 
One of the main reasons parents get mad at their kids when they disobey is actually because they love and care for their kids and disobedience is dangerous. We give rules to protect our children and so when they break them, they are harming themselves and putting themselves in danger. And so a loving parent should get angry when their kids keep harming themselves through willful disobedience. So it is with God. Now God is also described in various places as Israel's husband. And a husband will get angry if his wife is unfaithful to him. Why? Precisely because he loves her. Yes, there is unrighteous jealousy, but there is also righteous jealousy. God is said to be a jealous God. So as you read through these verses and you see that God gets angry, that shouldn't surprise you. As one commentator says, it is the price we pay for being loved. Yahweh had told Israel he would brook no rivals for Yahweh's name is jealous. He is the jealous God. Jealousy is the flip side of love. It is required where exclusive love is called for. So again, he says, jealousy is love burst into its proper flame. So those outside of Christ bear the curse of sin, but even the covenant of grace came with blessings and curses. Even forgiven sin will have consequences. Now the curses and consequences in this context were that God gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. As you see in verse 14. So as it says in verse 15, whenever they went out and marched to fight, God was against them. And he tells them in verse 21, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. We read again, so the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Verse 23. So now chapter 1 is starting to make more sense. Why did Israel start losing and failing to drive out the Canaanites? Was it because those chariots of iron were impenetrable? No, it was because they forsook God and he wasn't fighting for them anymore. Sin comes with curses and consequences. But I want you to notice something important. Israel was not left guessing why they were suffering the way they were suffering. In verse 15, it says, the Lord was against them as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. So the, the curses and consequences they faced were not a surprise. They weren't ambiguous. For God had said in Leviticus 26, 17, that if Israel disobeyed him, he said, I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. And again, God says in Deuteronomy 28, 25, that if they disobey, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. So what happens here in Judges is both the, the covenant curse and it is the natural consequence of Israel's sin. It is the covenant 
curse that God warned them about. And it is a direct consequence because, of course, if they don't drive out their enemies, what's going to happen? Their enemies are going to fight back and oppress them. So when you suffer because of sin, it will not be an ambiguous. You're not going to be left wondering whether sin is the problem or not. God has given you his word and his word is clear. So you will know when you've disobeyed his commands. God has clearly warned us about the curse of sin. But in addition to God's promised curses, you may suffer natural direct consequences of sin. By that, I mean if you have a gambling addiction and you gamble all your money away, you will face poverty. So when you can't pay your bills and maybe you lose your home, you shouldn't be wondering, is this somehow related to my sin? Yes, it's the direct consequence of what you have done. Or if you cheat on a test and you get caught, you're going to fail the test. You may fail the class and have to retake it. That suffering is a direct result of your sin. Other clear warnings and direct consequences of, of sin are that your conscience may be troubled for a time. Your sense of communion with God may feel disrupted. But my point is that if you are suffering curse or consequence for sin, it won't be ambiguous. You will know. God clearly warned Israel what would happen if they disobeyed. And their suffering was the obvious result of the specific manner of their disobedience. So I, I often point this out when Christians wrestle when, as they're suffering in various ways. And they're, they're wondering, is, is this somehow sin or am I just suffering? Because not all suffering is the direct consequence of of sin. The book of Job is clear that the righteous may suffer. Jesus suffered and he never sinned. So it's not always that your particular trial is some discipline for sin. But if your suffering is the result of sin, I don't believe you will have to wonder whether that is the case. You will either see that you have broken a clear command of Scripture or the consequence will be the obvious fruit of your sin. In other words, God's not going to hand out some punishment for sin that you're not aware of and just leave you guessing. If he's trying to redirect you away from a specific sin, he's going to make clear that's what he's doing. He's not going to burn your house down because you were impatient with your child. That's not a direct consequence. There are curses and consequences for sin, but they are clearly articulated in Scripture or obviously connected to the sin. The third lesson is that you must hate your sin more than you mourn your suffering. Israel suffered because of their sin. The author says in verse 15, they were in terrible distress. The problem was that they were only distressed by their suffering. They weren't distressed by their sin. How do we know that? 
And we know that because when God raises up judges to deliver them from their oppressors, yes, they want the physical deliverance, but they don't listen to the spiritual teaching. They don't listen to the judges who tell them to turn back to the Lord. They just keep going after other gods. And whenever the judges died, it says they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So if all you care about is the relief from suffering and not the removal of sin, well, then you're going to be content with whatever material, physical relief you receive and you won't pursue repentance. So you know that you are mourning your suffering more than your sin when you're not actually turning from it and instead you just keep pursuing it further. Many people have religious interest when, God get, when life gets hard. Maybe they start attending church for a Sunday or they, they promise, Lord, if you just get me out of this, I, I promise I'll start following you. But as soon as God lightens their load, they're right back to their old way of life. What they wanted was physical relief, not spiritual redemption. They wanted their suffering removed, but they also wanted their sin to remain. Are we not all guilty of this at times? When life gets hard, we, we start to read our Bibles a little bit more. We, we pray with more frequency and fervency. Maybe we're more regular at church. But when things start going well again, well, the Bible starts to collect dust. Our prayers fade into silence and Sunday just once again becomes another day. It is dangerous to receive God's mercy for suffering and ignore his mercy for sin. To treat symptoms and not the disease is not to save life. It is to actually hasten death because it's the pain that's leading you to take action to kill what is threatening your life. Peace will encourage you to cohabitate with what will kill you. So even when you face consequences for sin, while it is good to seek relief from suffering, it is right to ask God to remove it. It is deadly to only deal with the consequences. And so we are taught to confess sin more than we cry out against our suffering. Indeed, we are to let the pain of consequences drive us to confession, even above supplication. For if you abuse God's mercy, you will just move deeper into sin and draw closer to hell. Pursue repentance above relief. Because suffering cannot damn you. Only sin can. Hate sin more than you mourn suffering. The fourth lesson is that God's anger, which we clearly see in Judges, does not negate his mercy. As I said before, God's anger in response to Israel's sin shouldn't surprise you. That makes perfect sense. What should surprise you is reading about his pity Raising up enemies to oppress the Israelites is, is clearly just. Raising up judges to save them is clearly grace. And yet this is what we find in Judges 2. Isn't it amazing that 
after saying in verse 15 that God was against Israel and they are in distress, without any explanation, the next verse says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. It's just undeserved mercy. Israel sins. Their only response is to mourn their suffering, not repent of sin. And yet God, according to nothing other than his mercy, grace, and love, delivers them anyway. And even though Israel moves from bad to worse, it says the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. What a merciful father we have. I try to keep this in mind when dealing with my own kids. Yes, I need to discipline my kids. Don't want to reward and encourage sinful behavior. But there have been times when they do something they're not supposed to do and there is a consequence. Usually it's something like they don't get dessert after dinner. There have been many times I have had children on my floor wailing as they are denied an ice cream bar. Now they don't care at all that they disobeyed and that's why this is happening. They're just sad they don't get an ice cream bar. And I'll admit there are times where just their pathetic miserable selves on the floor moves me to pity and I give them an ice cream bar anyway. That's what God does here in Judges 2. They're just sad because things aren't going well. They're not asking for forgiveness and God just keeps handing them ice cream bars that they don't deserve. So God is always angry at the sin of his children. But he still shows them mercy. He doesn't find gratification in their groaning. So don't think that God is apathetic to your suffering or happy when you're sad, even when it is your fault. And remember that if you are his child, his displeasure with you doesn't mean you've stopped being his child or that he stopped loving you. Even human parents can be filled with anger and love toward their children at the same time. Yes, your communion with God can be disrupted by sin. But your union with God in Christ can never be severed by sin. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, Paul says. So let your distress lead you to repentance, not to despair. God may be disciplining you for sin, but as it says in Hebrews 12, he only disciplines those he loves. He doesn't discipline his enemies, he condemns them. God does discipline his sons and daughters, though, not to condemn them, but to correct them and protect them from greater condemnation. So his anger does not negate his mercy. As Micah said, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. The fifth and final lesson is that God still has a purpose for the consequences of your sin. Christians still suffer consequences for sin. Yes, there may be times that just in his mercy, he actually spares you from consequences you should face. There may be times in his mercy that he relieves those consequences 
quicker than they naturally would have gone away. But he may not. And even when he does bring those consequences upon you and they remain, the good news is he is still working his good purpose for you. For the Christian, even sin's consequences will serve their sanctification and final salvation. You see this in Judges 2.22 and 3.1. God not only leaves the nations to discipline Israel, says he leaves the nations to test them to see whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. Again, in chapter 3, verse 4, it says, They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commands of the Lord. Now, we need to be clear that God's tests are not to reveal something to God that he doesn't already know. The tests are to reveal something to us. His tests are to bring us clarity, not God. For they give us an unambiguous choice to either serve God or not. So when we face these trials and tests, we're no longer allowed to waffle. We can't stand on the fence. We can't have one foot in either camp. The tests essentially draw a clear line in the sand and they help us see, are we walking in faithfulness to God or not? The test for Israel, we see, was also to teach them war, which they had not known. Now, I don't think this means it was to teach them military strategy. It's a way of saying they needed to understand that they were not just in a physical war, they were in a spiritual war, and the, eternal, and the stakes were eternal life or death. They needed to understand the seriousness of their situation. Choosing to follow God or not follow him wasn't a choice that could be put off. You need to remember this too. You and I are in a war and we must keep choosing a side. Again, we hear Joshua's challenge. Choose this day whom you will serve. So do not grow complacent with your sin or with the world. For you will either fight by faith or you will fall by faithlessness. So God's tests aren't to trick or stump you. They are to provide you with serious clarity. They're not to tempt you to fall. They're actually to strengthen you to stand. Remember what James says in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing is creating something good in you and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may perfect be perfect and complete lacking in nothing and peter adds in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even your consequences, the consequences of your sin, have a good purpose in your life. But what, do you, what about when you fail these tests, as the Israelites clearly do? And this is the last question I 
will address tonight. For in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, you, you see the Israelites clearly fail. They live with the Canaanites. They're intermarrying with them. It's not good. So we may wonder, well, they failed the test. Is that the end? Well, clearly in the book of Judges, this isn't the end. Israel's failures never exhaust his mercy. He keeps raising up more judges to deliver them. And even more clearly in the rest of the Bible, this is not the end. For God eventually raises up a final judge and deliverer to save his people from all of their sinful failures. And we have a lot of them. Now that deliverer, that judge, like all the ones who came before him, eventually died. But unlike all the ones who came before him, he didn't stay dead. God raised him from the dead to be the eternal judge and savior of his people. And in his death, he did what no other judge was able to do. Because on the cross, Jesus, who is the final judge and savior, defeated all of your oppressors who would plunder your soul. Sin, Satan, the world. And he has given you freedom forever. For if the Son sets you free, Jesus says, you are free indeed. And the good news is that he removed once and for all the curse of your sin. Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The curse of the law which the Israelites are experiencing in Judges has been removed once and for all in Christ. So Christian, what do you do when you fail the test? You remember three things. Number one, you remember that no matter how many times you sin, you are never facing the curse of the law. Christ removed the curse by bearing it in himself, so you will never be condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you suffer for sin, know that what you are suffering is not the ultimate curse. Christ has taken that away. So if you wonder, am, am I under the curse of sin now? Christian, the answer is always no. No matter how many times you fail the test, you do not go back under the curse of sin. Otherwise, Christ has failed to do what he said he has done. Number two, you remember then that you will never exhaust God's mercy in Christ. The Puritan Richard Sibbs once wrote, We have this for a firm foundation of truth, that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Your sin cannot outweigh Christ's grace. Sibbs even posits a possible objection, which is, but I have often relapsed and fallen into the same sin again and again. What about then, Puritan Sibs? Well, Sibs answers, if Christ will have us pardon our brother 77 times, can we think he will press us to do more than he will be ready to do himself? 
In other words, if he has commanded us, you keep forgiving those who come and repent who have sinned against you. Well, then surely God will keep forgiving those who repent and turn to him. We cannot possibly out forgive and out mercy God. So when you sin, keep repenting. Even when you suffer consequences and cry out for relief, first cry out for forgiveness. And he will always forgive. There will never come the day where you have finally sinned one too many times. You've, you've fallen in that same besetting sin just one too many times. And you cry out forgiveness and he says, sorry, I don't have any more mercy for you. No, we are told in 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Third and finally, remember that even when you do suffer consequences for your sins and you bear God's displeasure, you never cease to be his beloved child. And he has purposed even the consequences of your sin for your salvation. Sin has consequences, but for the Christian, those consequences still have a redemptive purpose. You have not messed up God's plan for your life or for the world. And what you are now facing and suffering is not the damnation of an angry judge. It is the discipline of a loving father. So repent and then rejoice. For the curse of your sin has been removed for all time. And the consequences of your sin will be redeemed for all time. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for grace and power to fight against sin. But we also ask for grace and mercy that you would forgive us when we do sin. Oh Lord, we don't want to walk in unfaithfulness to you. But we confess that there are, there are many times we do. Lord, would you keep calling us back to yourself? Would you keep convicting and revealing our sin to us by your Holy Spirit. That we might keep confessing. And would you give us hope. Knowing that there is always more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. We thank you that the curse has been removed and even the consequences will be redeemed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.